and he's running about 101, between 101 and 102 fever, and so we don't want him here this morning, but we do love him, and I hope that he, I know he's probably watching us and saying, why did she say that, but um, um, let's do remember him in prayer, um, and because you are my brothers and sisters in Christ, won't you stand and turn to him number 379 as we worship and sing, Brethren, we have met to worship. Before we pray, I just need to take a moment and uh, share with you the passing 
of our Pastor Emeritus, dear friend, uh, trusted mentor and confidant and counselor and minister in this church for 30 years from 1966 to 1996, stood behind this pulpit every Sunday and faithfully proclaimed the word of the Lord. Entered into the hospital Thursday morning, diagnosed with acute leukemia, and passed away two days later with his family gathered around singing hymns and quoting scripture and praising God for his life. Um, I don't ordinarily make um, announcements like this at the beginning of the service because of the mood that descends upon us, but uh, I would be disingenuous if I stood before you and pretended that my emotions were not close to the surface today. But for the life of Dr. William Chess Smith III, we give thanks and give God praise and uh, pray for his family. Visitation tomorrow night here in our sanctuary from 6 to 8. The funeral will be Tuesday at 1 o'clock here in our sanctuary. And uh, the family is strong. The faith that he preached, he also lived in his home and and, uh, that is upholding them today. I know the legacy that He leaves here not only in our church but in our state convention and in our Southern Baptist convention and in Baptist around the world. The impact will remain strong for generations to come. I'd like for us to to bow in in silent prayer and give thanks for Chess's life and for the impact he had on your families. I know there are folks whom he baptized here, whom he married, family members whom he buried. And... um, We need to praise God. Let's bow together. Father, even though we're brokenhearted today, we we rise to pay tribute and to give you thanks and praise you for the life of Chess Smith and his ministry in our state, in our nation, and around the world and right here in Tifton through First Baptist Church for his faithful service, the proclamation of your word and then how he lived that word out in his home with his family and his interactions with church members, how he sought to serve you And embody your love every day of his life. God, it seemed like he would be here. He would always be among us. He would always be nearby to to bring strength and counsel and encouragement and impart wisdom when we needed it. But we trust in your wisdom this day. And we know you do all things well. And we thank you that he is now home around the heavenly table as the song we just sang, eating holy manna and enjoying the reward of his faithful labors for so many years. Help us as a church now to persevere in the faith that he held forth and to be strong and to hold that legacy. And one day also to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. 
as he is hearing these days. Bless his family and help us as a church to hold them up and to love them and to find the strength that comes from trusting in thee. Always in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be seated. Good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. Uh, if you're our guest, we're excited to have you here this morning. And please, if, if you're here, uh, I notice that there's a quartet from Tift Area Academy. I can't wait to hear them sing. Uh, also, there may be others who are visiting with us. Uh, if you would fill out the registration form in your bulletin and turn that into the offering plate, we'd love to have a, a record of your attendance. I also wanted to, to share there is a a noticeable absence in the youth section. 110 youth are involved in Disciple Now, and they decided in mass to go to the connection service. So that service is uh, packed out right now. But uh, they've had a great weekend, and uh, we'll hear tonight from a, a missionary who came to speak at Disciple Now, and you'll be encouraged by her as well. Thank you again. Also, if you have a prayer request on the back of that, uh, you may write that in. There's a group that is praying for you even right now as the service is going on. We'd also like you to just stand right now and just greet someone around you. Oh my goodness, where can I sit? Can I get right here? Ooh, ooh, don't let me step on any little fingers. I don't want to hear anybody squeal. Ooh, how are y'all this morning? Good, so good to see y'all. I'm glad you're here. And uh, were you in Sunday school? Did you enjoy Sunday school this morning? Wasn't that fun? We're here to do Happy Club, and it just occurs to me that Brother Chess began Happy Club probably 46 years ago. And so how many of you were here 46 years ago? You were? Oh, good, good. Well, you're, you're a lot younger. Um, you look a lot younger than you are, but I'm glad you're here this morning. And uh, Jace Hendricks, where's Jace? There he is. He's got the Happy Club bag. And let's see what Jace brought this morning. Something. Oh, something soft. He thinks it's a stuffed animal. Let's see. Yeah. Yeah. It's a dog. Jace, can you tell me about this? I'm sorry? Honey is in heaven. Who's honey? Your dog. Oh, your dog. Named Honey. Does, does this look like honey? 
a little bit, so it kind of reminds you of, of, your, of your puppy that passed away and, uh, and the sadness that that brings. You know, boys and girls, we do believe that when our, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ pass away, that they're in heaven with God. And, and uh, you know, Jay, she bring, you bring this, and it reminds us of honey, and it reminds me of Brother Chess and the sadness that we have because even though we know he's in heaven and he's not here suffering, it means that, that we'll miss him. And uh, I know you miss honey, and I have lost some, uh, some pets that I was very close to and, and that I, I think of often. But most of all, it makes me think of the promise that we have through Jesus that those we love who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, when they die, they go to be with him in heaven. And so that brings us hope, and that, and that encourages us, and that helps us when we get sad. How many of you have lost a grandparent who, who has died, or a great-grandparent? You know what it's like to lose a loved one, and, and how sad that can be. But we, we know that those who die in the Lord are with him in heaven, and that, that makes us happy. So let's thank God right now for, for being with us when we need him most. All right, let's bow together. All right, let's pray. Can you pray after me? Dear God, we thank you that when those we love pass away and they know you, they go to heaven. Father, bless those who hurt this day. Bless those who hurt this day and give us hope. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Jace, I know honey's death makes you sad, but we can, we can know and trust in the fact that God takes care of those who love them. All right. You have a friend who passed away. We all have somebody we love who passed away, and so we remember them with love and with the assurance that, that, that if they know Jesus, they're in heaven. Miss Karen, it's a, it's a girl's turn, isn't it? Where's Cadence? Cadence, will you take the bag home and bring something special next week? Thank you. Yes, boys and girls, you can go to children's worship with Miss Karen. Your cat, does that make you sad? My pillow pet did be passed away. Oh. In store for all of us today as we come to worship. I've had the privilege of the last uh, couple of months, I think, working with uh, the students at Tiftier Academy and they're preparing for literary meeting, their girls trio and their boys quartet. And the guys were just singing so well. I said, you've got to come sing for church and share that blessing with them. And uh, I want to introduce these young men and, they, and I appreciate them and their families giving up the worship time at their own churches uh, to come and share with us. Uh, Cole McLean, uh, Matthew Fuller, Trent Hobbs, and Taylor Dukes, and they'll be uh, going tomorrow to sing for their literary meet, but right now they're going to bless us as they sing for us.
but there's a state college of choice in this town called ABAC. They'll be mighty happy to have y'all in their choir. And they have money to give, okay? Hallelujah. Let's all stand up for Jesus.
Dear Lord, we come to help this morning, dear Lord, to worship you and praise your name. We think for this chance we have to be here. Dear Lord, this morning we come with a heavy heart, but also with a joyous heart. We think about your loyal servant. Dear Lord, we praise Chesmith's name, dear Lord, and his service to you. What he meant to this church and this community, dear Lord, and all the many souls he led to you in your kingdom. We ask that you be with him and, and bless his family. Dear Lord, to take this morning's offering, we ask that you anoint it and bless it that is used for your kingdom and for your work. And as we prepare ourselves this morning's message, that you be a brother way in each one of us that we see the special blessing you have for us. That just may pray. Amen. Because so often we miss God in our midst, I want you to realize that Brother Ron picked out that song for those young men to sing, and soon and very soon we're going to see the king. Who would have known they would have sung it on the Sunday after we lost Brother Chess? Who would have known only God? Who would have known that this, these songs, these hymns we're singing this morning that Brother Gary has picked out, and this beautiful Kyrie eleison, which means Lord have mercy, only God. God handles everything. He is in charge. Run to him.
Thank you, choir. Oh, Lord, have mercy. And he always does. And his grace is always sufficient, isn't it? Always. We are uh, looking at the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. We're in the third church. The first church, Ephesus, had lost its first love. The second church, Smyrna, was being faithful but in the midst of tribulation. The third church is Pergamum. And it's Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. The sermon is entitled, The Danger of Compromise. The Danger of Compromise because Pergamum even though in a pagan environment, that's not the problem. The problem is that that environment had begun to creep into the church and the church was allowing it. Let's read Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice immorality. So you also have some. Now he's talking to the church. In the church you have followers of Balaam, and in the church you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent then, repent then, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except him who receives it. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let's pray together. Father, as we come today, make us aware of the context in in which our church resides, the environment, the surroundings, and where we have acquiesced and compromised to the surroundings, Father, make us painfully aware and give us boldness to stand up and say no more. Help us to value what you value and to hold forth the truth of the gospel in its clearest, purest light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is an old fable about an Arab who sat in his tent and a camel sitting outside and the camel gently thrust his nose under the flap and looked in and said, Master, let me put my nose in the tent. It's cold and stormy out here. And the Arab said, By all means. And the camel stuck his nose in and the Arab turned over and went to sleep. A little later, the Arab woke up to find the camel had not only put his nose in the tent, but also his head and neck. The camel had been turning his head from side to side, and he said, Master, it'll only take a few more, a little more room if you'll allow me to put my forelegs in the tent. It's difficult standing out here, and the, and the Arab said, Of course, 
You may put your forelegs in, moving over a little bit to make more room for the camel. Finally, the camel said, Master, may I not stand wholly inside by keeping my forelegs in and my hind legs out? I've kept the flap of the tent open. It'll be better for both of us if you let me bring all in. So the camel crowded in and the Arab with difficulty rolled over in that crowded quarters and once again went to sleep. And when he woke up the next morning, you know what happened. He was outside in the cold. And the camel was inside the tent, all to himself, warm and cozy. I thought of that parable, that fable, because it speaks to me of the danger of compromise. You start giving in a little bit here and a little bit there, and before you know it, you have lost everything. The camel not only stuck his nose in, but his forelegs and then his hind legs, and before you know it, you're the one outside, And the camel is enjoying the warmth of the tent because you have compromised a little bit at a time. I found myself thinking this week about where have we compromised as Christians and as a church? Where have we majored where Jesus minored and where have we minored where Jesus majored? And, and we give in a little bit here and a little bit there under the guise of being politically correct or not wanting to offend anyone. When you start doing that, when and where do you stop? That's the trouble the church at Pergamum had gotten themselves into. Pergamum, if we can throw a map up, Pergamum is about 30 miles north of Smyrna. It's inland from the Aegean Sea. You remember we started at Ephesus on the coast and then up to Smyrna on the coast and now up to Pergamum. And it's almost like John is thinking of this clockwise route of the churches that one day he hopes to take. And in the meantime, while he is exiled on the island of Patmos, out in the middle of the Aegean Sea, Christ has come to him and given him this revelation that the churches need to hear these messages. Pergamum was known for its temples to its Greek gods and its altars to the Roman emperors. There were temples everywhere. There were Roman emperor altars everywhere. Let me tell you a little bit about Pergamum, and there's an outline in your worship bulletin. First of all, Pergamum had one of the most famous libraries in the known world in its day. It had 200,000 volumes, which doesn't sound too impressive until you realize that everyone was hand-copied, hand-copied on parchment. And the word parchment just happens to come from the word pergamum. It's kind of interesting how that, how that evolved because there was a greater library in that day in Alexandria. And the folks at Pergamum said, if we can get the librarian from Alexandria to come up to Pergamum, we'll have the greatest library in the world. So they began to court the librarian down in, in Egypt in Alexandria that had a greater library. And the king of Egypt found out and he put the librarian in jail. Kind of like what we do to corporate raiders today. And uh, not only did he do that, but because he found out that they were trying to get the librarian, Egypt had developed this, this writing technique called papyrus, which was taking reeds and beating them flat and putting water with them, making them almost flat as paper. Well, the, the king of Egypt put an embargo on papyrus going to Pergamum. No more papyrus, no more writing paper for Pergamum. So that's why Pergamum developed parchment. 
writing on animal skins. And to this day, if you get a college diploma, sometimes they call it what? A lambskin, parchment, because that's what important documents were written upon. Pergamum also had a temple to the Greek god Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of healing. And there was a temple to Asclepius, and the symbol of Asclepius was a serpent. Now, in the Bible, a serpent represents Satan. It represents evil. But to the Greeks, a serpent represented healing. And the temple at Asclepius had uh, a, a, a medical school. It had... Uh, a hospital ward, it had sick people from all over the world coming there to worship, and the legend had it that if you slept in the temple of Asclepius, that there were tame snakes there that would crawl over you, and if it crawled over you, you would be magically healed. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Well, then why in the world is the symbol of medicine today, which is the caduceus, formed with a staff and intertwining snakes? Now you know where that comes from. It's inappropriate it's uh, it, it, it's almost counter. It, it doesn't make sense to have uh, intertwining snakes, which have their background of Asclepius, the god of healing in the Greek culture. Not only did they have a library in Asclepius, they also had emperor worship. The first temple to an emperor, who was Augustus Caesar, was built in Pergamum, so they could lay claim to the fact that they were first in emperor worship. So this is the environment that the fledgling church at Pergamum was waging battle against. But unfortunately, this environment, this culture was making inroads into the church. In this letter, as every letter, two things are held forth as being important. The first thing is the importance of love. The second thing is the importance of truth. I'm going to talk about those both in a minute But in every church, there needs to be a balance between truth and love because if you make love your only concern, then sometimes you neglect doctrinal truth and error can creep in because you're so worried about about not offending anyone. But on the other hand, if all you care about is protecting the truth and don't love anyone, then you can become harsh and judgmental and arrogant, and we see that in churches all the time too. There needs to be a balance, the balance in these letters, the balance in the New Testament. It talks about the balance between truth and love. The importance of truth has some emphasis, the truth on Jesus and the truth about holiness. The truth about Jesus, he says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name. You hold fast my name. My name, Jesus, represents who he is. It's the truth about Jesus. And most of the folks in Pergamum are holding fast to that truth. What's so wonderful about Christianity is it's not just a set of doctrines that you have to adhere to. It's not just a set of things that you have to check off and saying, yes, I'm doing that. The wonderful thing about Christianity is it's about a person in a relationship with Jesus that you can believe in. So what is the irreducible minimum? What is the least common denominator that we have to hang on to about Jesus? We believe that Jesus was the Son of God who came to earth to dwell among us, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins, was dead and buried, and three days later rose from the dead to be the Savior of the world. 
And if you confess your sins, he will come in and forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness and enable you to have that fellowship with God for which you were created. That is what we believe about Jesus. And not only are those propositional facts about Jesus, but it is also a truth that you can believe in. Not only is he the Lord and Savior, not only is he our Lord and Savior, but he is my Lord and Savior. It is personal that you can place your faith in. And then they give an example of someone who did just that, Antipas. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. We don't know exactly what reference is talking about where Satan dwells. It might have been uh, a temple to Zeus, which was on an outcropping uh, above Pergamum. And perhaps they took Antipas up there. We don't know anything else about him because this is the only place in the Bible where he's mentioned. But very likely what happened to him was what happened to Polycarp. Remember I mentioned last week in Smyrna, all you have to do is burn a little incense, Polycarp or Antipas, and say Caesar is Lord. And then you can go about your business and believe anything you want and, and uh, do anything else you want the rest of the year. But Polycarp in Smyrna and Antipas here in Pergamum refused to render to Caesar that which belonged only to Christ. Only Jesus is Lord. I can't say Caesar is Lord. Only Jesus. And as they did to Polycarp, they probably did to Antipas here in Pergamum and put him to death. But not only do we believe in Jesus, but how we believe in Jesus has to impact how we live. And that comes to holiness. You can't just say you believe in Jesus and go out and live any way you want to and do anything you want to. And the letter at Pergamum mentions some folks who had infiltrated the church who were doing that and teaching that who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. If you'll go back to Numbers 22 and 24, you'll find where the children of Israel are coming into the promised land, and Balaam is, Balak, who is a king in the promised land, is getting Balaam to go and try to put a curse on the children of Israel who were coming into the promised land. It wasn't working. And so Balaam said, I know what I'll do. I'll take the women of the of the Palestinian women and parade them out and try to seduce the children of Israel as they come into the promised land and, and introduce to them foreign gods and, and make them desert the one true God. And, and uh, that didn't work either. But Balaam throughout the Bible became one who represented infiltrating the church with idolatry. And then they mentioned the Nicolaitans. Remember they were also mentioned in the church at Ephesus. The Nicolaitans taught that since we are forgiven and since we are saved, we can go out and do anything we want to. Since we are free in Christ, we are free to sin and be forgiven for it. We can then go and ask forgiveness. So the Nic Nicolaitans were what we call libertines. They celebrated their liberty in Christ and they said it doesn't matter how you live, you can be forgiven for it. And that... that false doctrine. That error was infiltrating the church. And so Christ in his revelation to John says some there are holding to the teaching of Balaam. Some there are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And not only was Satan inhabiting Pergamum but he had his throne in Pergamum and he was ruling in Pergamum. 
because it was infiltrating the church and that false doctrine was taking hold and taking root. And this letter to the church says, dispel those myths, dispel that error, protect the truth of the gospel. How do you do that? Verse 16 says, repent then. Repent. And then he tells you how to repel error, how to repel evil. It it says in beginning in verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Well, what is the sharp two-edged sword? Well, throughout the Bible, the sword represents the word of God. You remember the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God? That's how you repel evil. That's how you repel error and falsehood. You don't try to fight it with an inquisition. You don't try to fight it with a crusade. You don't even try to use governmental regulations. The only way that truth can defeat error is by using the word of God, the sharp two-edged sword. And when you introduce the sword of the spirit, this sharp two-edged sword, piercing as far as the joints and marrow, and able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the sword that you use to, to repent and defeat error. And if you don't, verse 16 comes judgment. Repent then, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. How about that? The very sword that you use to repel evil with. If you refuse to do that, that sword will one day change its function. The message of truth, if rejected, will become the message of judgment. And the sword that is the word of God that saves those who obey it will one day destroy those who disobey it. But you have an opportunity to trust in the sword of the Spirit, the two-edged sword, which is the word of God. And if you do that, Verse 17 and 18, to him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone which no one knows except him who receives it. What is the manna? You remember the manna in the wilderness that the children of Israel were fed as they were wandering toward the promised land? When I stand up and introduce the Lord's Supper, I usually use the words of institution that says something like this. This is the bread that came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He that eateth this bread will live forever. The manna represents Jesus Christ, the holy manna. We sang about it in, in, in a hymn today. The holy manna, brethren, we have met to worship. We'll be fed by holy manna one day because it represents Jesus I will give him some of the hidden manna himself. And it also says, I will give him a white stone. Now, what in the world is this? I enjoyed reading about this this week because there's several interpretations about what a white stone could be. But my favorite is is, uh, the reference to the courtroom. And a white stone, when someone who is charged with a crime is brought before a judge and jury, they hear the charges, they hear the accused, they hear... um, the person bringing the charges, and then they vote by placing either a white stone or a black stone in an urn. You ever heard of somebody being blackballed or someone like that? That's the reference to it. You, you use white stones if someone's innocent. You use black stones if someone's guilty. The judge counts the stones, 
And then if the predominance is white, he decides that the accused is innocent and he takes a white stone and he writes the accused's name on it and he presents it to the accused so that accused can then go forth from the courtroom and someone asks, whatever happened to that charge that was brought against you, he can produce that white stone with his name upon it and say, look, I was proclaimed innocent and here is my name to verify that. If you persevere, not only will you partake of holy manna, but you will be given a white stone with a new name written upon it. You will be pronounced innocent of the sins, the charges that have been brought against you. And you have that white stone with the name of Jesus on it that paid the penalty for you as proof for all eternity. You know... Jesus declared in Matthew 16 to Peter, when Peter gave him the confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, blessed are you because you are the rock and upon this rock I will build my church and to you will be given the keys of the kingdom. So when Jesus blessed Simon Peter and gave to him the keys of the kingdom and implicitly threw Peter to the church, God has, in effect, given us the keys to the kingdom. We have the truth that we are to share. But I was, I was sharing with prayer meeting Wednesday night, what happens when you go to a locksmith and you take a key and you say, make a copy of this key for me. And then a few weeks later, you go and make a copy of that copy. And then a few weeks later, you go and make a copy of that copy of that copy. And pretty soon you have a copy of a key and what happens? It doesn't work anymore. You can't unlock the lock that the original key had because you have gone too far from the original. You've gotten too far from the standard. And that occurs to me, what we are doing as a church with the keys of the kingdom. Where are we today? Let's take stock as a church. What did we do in the past 20, 30 years? Those of you who remember the day when it was safe enough to watch TV and there didn't have to be warnings uh, before a show? What happened when the Sabbath was holy? What happened when marriage was assumed to be between a man and a woman? Or when prayer and discipline were allowed in schools and metal detectors were not necessary? What has happened to our society and what has the church said and done as we have allowed the culture to creep in and we have silently acquiesced on the guise of being politically correct and not wanting to be offensive, are we like the man and the camel? And before we know it, we're thrust completely outside of where we're supposed to be the keys, the original key which Christ has given us in his word, in his sword. And, and the keys that we now have don't even open the locks anymore because we have compromised and compromised and compromised. Where have we compromised in the Christian life? Where have we compromised as a church? Where have we remained silent when society has changed us rather than allowing us as a church to transform it. 
That is our calling to be the salt and light, not to insulate ourselves from society, but not to let society infiltrate us either, as Pergamum was doing, Balaam, the Nicolaitans, all kinds of heresies were creeping in. And and incidentally, by the second century, the church at Pergamum ceased to exist because they did not stand up against the falsehood that was entering in to the body of Christ. This letter to Pergamum says, do not compromise. There is a danger, an inherent danger. And if you're not careful, you give it a little here, it might not be a big deal, a little bit more, a little bit more. But before you know it, you have lost what you stand for. And the the price of compromise is too great. This is the truth. This is the sword of the Spirit. This is what you use to combat error and evil. And if you do not, and if you do not believe, one day this will be the tool of judgment that will stand against you. Chess Smith was faithful in proclaiming for 30 years the truth of the gospel from this pulpit and has left us a rich legacy. And it is incumbent upon us now to hold that standard high and be faithful to what God has called us in the years to come. Let's bow together. Father, as we come today, we thank you for the faithfulness of our predecessors who held fast to the truth and held up the sword of the Spirit and interpreted it so eloquently in ways that we could understand and apply in our lives. And Father, now, it seems like change is occurring even more rapidly in our culture. And the church in many ways has remained silent. And we just ask that you would convict us and reveal to us, Lord, what are the non-negotiables and help us hold to them and stand fast for them no matter what. And do not be ashamed in our society because you are our Lord. Beside you there is no other. And we follow you and only you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You want to know what our foundation is? It's Jesus Christ. And if you build on any other foundation, you'll be sadly mistaken one day to see it slipping away. 338 is our hymn of decision. How firm a foundation. And if you need to profess your faith publicly in Jesus today, If you need to rededicate your life, if you need to join our church, we would welcome you. This is a great church, and it's had uh, such a history of, of folks who have faithfully served. And we would love to open the doors of fellowship to you and welcome you to join in that line of pilgrims who are faithfully marching home. Stand together, 338, I'll be at the front to receive you. Please come as we stand and sing.
Thank you. Have a seat. We want to introduce you to this one, making a decision public here this morning. And as we do, um, let's remember the Smith family. Uh, they are, they're very strong. The faith that, that Chess preached for, for 30 years here and then at least 10 interims in the last uh, 16 years. Uh, they also lived in their home. And uh, they are, they're praising God and they're thanking him for uh, Chess's life and the impact that he's had on on so many people. Baptists don't have bishops, but if they did, he would be the bishop of South Georgia. And if we had saints, um, I'd nominate him immediately. Will you join with me in welcoming Hui Wong? Juliet, come and stand with us. Now, Juliet tells me that Hui came here from recently from Auburn and is in Tifton doing a research project uh, she was saved and was not able to be baptized, and so she wants to join our church and be baptized here um, as testimony to her faith. Her husband and son will be joining her in April, and uh, she comes today from our international Sunday school class and saying that Jesus is her Lord and Savior and uh, wants to join that church and be baptized as a testimony to her faith in him. So if you join me in welcoming Wei Wong, would you let me know by saying Amen. And then we we celebrate with you. you. Come by and speak to her, and and Juliet will help in the translation if you need to. But uh, come and uh, will you will you return to China one day, or will you stay in the states, or one year program return to China? So when she goes to China, she'll be a missionary, and she'll be able to tell the folks in China about. The Jesus she discovered in America and the difference he's made in her life and the testimony that she will continue to give as she returns home to China. Let's also remember Chris and Katie Knowles and pray that their visas arrive and they're able to return to Mozambique.